He, I mean the Bill Gaither rights, <laughs> the homecoming, yes, are playing the Toyota Center today at 3.30. And we've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 suites, seats, 12 seats in the, the suite uh, uh, that, that the law firm has. Um, and 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 parking permits that uh, are for uh, y'all, whoever might want them. This is, uh, we periodically give away things. Generally, it's pockets of money, but uh, <laughs> we, we always do it to keep people sitting down near the front. And uh, so next week, remember, it could be money week. Uh, <laughs> You've, you've got, uh, uh, these are the seats. They're the ones that say Toyota Center Suites. Just the solid ones that say parking permits are the permits. I'm going to set them down on the stage. There are 12. You'll be sitting with people in class. If you only need two, take two. If you only need one, take one. If you need five, take five. But uh, these are, are y'all's. And um, uh, there's not like food in the suite, but I think in the refrigerator we've got some... Uh, uh, Cokes and stuff that y'all are welcome to. Um, uh, and I've hidden some baked lay potato chips in one of the cabinets if you want to try to find them. Um, <clears throat> there is no alcohol in the suite. It's the Bill Gaither celebration anyway, and it's my law firm's suite, so there's not supposed to be alcohol in there. I said that last year, though, and evidently someone had found some alcohol in some cabinet. If it's there, it's not mine, and you have my permission to pour it out in the sink or use it as a paint thinner. Um, our other announcement is uh, 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 already been made by Debbie. I just want to make sure you all know that uh, Mom really can cook. Um, now, having said that, if you need a lesson, raise your hand. We are going to talk about St. Benedict today. Uh, Adele Hearn wanted me to start playing Benny and the Jets by Elton John, but I'm not going to do that because Jets weren't around when Benedict was. Uh, um, so we're just going to uh, talk about St. Benedict today. Who's uh, spent time in the last six months at a Christian bookstore? Anybody? Okay, most of you. Uh, I go to Christian bookstores a lot. I go to them online. I go to them, you know, we've got Grapevine right down the street. And one of the things that amazes me when I go in Christian bookstores is how many self-help books they've got. I mean, it's not just like, oh, gee, here's a row of self-help books. It's like row after row after row after row, column after column. I mean, there are more self-help books in most Christian bookstores, I dare say, than there are commentaries on Scripture. I mean, there's like reams of them. I tried to pull some out just to think about today. Uh, uh, there are, I mean, just row after row. You've got uh, uh, you know, Your Best Life Now, right now, by Joel Olstein is a big selling best help book. Um, uh, you've got books about how to be a Christian in spite of what's happened in your life. Uh, how to do Christian parenting. Um, how to uh, uh, get over your addictions. Um, how to... Uh, have a kernel of power. Um, how to think big. I made that a big book. I thought that seemed appropriate. Uh, but, uh, you know, unleash your potential for excellence. Self-love and Christian ethics and how to do successful Christian parenting. Um, um, uh, parenting like Mary and Joseph. 
uh, I don't know that. I haven't read that one. I, I don't know. Um, you know, technically when you're like God incarnate, I think that the, you, you can probably teach the parents a thing or two. It'd be more like how to be a good kid based on Jesus or something. But, you know, I don't know. That's what it was on. Uh, the Pursuit of Holiness, uh, uh, a book by Jerry Bridges, which is an outstanding book. Um, you get all of these self-help books, and there are tons of them. Anybody ever bought a self-help book? Overcoming Codependency. That's an illness. I read that book. Everybody's got that illness. I thought, man, this is handy. You know, you read this. Do you have any of these ten things wrong with you? If so, you're codependent. I don't think there's anyone in the world who wouldn't have to say yes and buy the book. Um, there are all sorts of, of disorders and maladies that people have that people write books over. And so you've got these. Uh, it's not just something Christian self-help books that you find uh, at the bookstore. You get self-help Christian stuff off TV. Anybody ever watched any Christian people on TV? I mean, you, you see these guys, you, you, if you see Joel Olstein, his messages generally are not, gee, let's unfold the Bible verse by verse. Generally, his messages are, how can you help your Christian walk with principles you learned, uh, uh, hopefully, from the Bible? Uh, it's not just uh, on TV. You go to our church services, you will hear at times sermons and lessons and Bible classes that are targeted to helping you as a newlywed or helping you as a, as a divorced person or helping you as a, a widow or a widower or helping you uh, parent children or, or helping you be a good husband or helping you be a good wife or how to be a man of God or how to be a woman of God in your life or, or how to handle your money. Uh, Wade Liberator this Wednesday night is speaking on how to break free from a performance-driven life. And, and we've got sermons that are targeted to help us in our Christian walk. Uh, not just books, not just sermons, but you can actually go see people. Uh, Louis Miori, his job is as a Christian counselor. You make an appointment with him and he helps you understand how to plug Christ in to helping you solve a crisis or a problem or issues that are in your life. And that's what he does for a living. So we've got self-help Christian books. We've got self-help ministries in, in uh, 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 teachings and classes. We've got counselors and, and, and other professionals that we can go to for help. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think, frankly, God gives us also science, which has given us some medicines that help some people adjust with their life, whether it's Prozac or lithium or the greatest drug of all. <clears throat> And these are things that help people adjust and handle and do a Christian walk. I have someone at work. He's a very good lawyer. He's a very good friend. But he told me his Christianity starts with his first cup of coffee. Before that, he doesn't have any. And, and, and that's just when he says that's why he wakes up before anybody else in his house and has his cup of coffee. He doesn't want his children to wake up and find him a pagan. <clears throat> Now, this brings up a very important question. Why do we have all these self-help aids when we have, the, whoops, the Bible? Yeah, because people don't always understand the Bible. The Bible's kind of big and hard to digest in some ways. I would suggest that these self-help aids, whether it's a sermon or a class or a counselor or a cup of coffee, 
are there uh, uh, to help us. Uh, first of all, they explain what the Bible teaches us in, in language that we understand, in, in circumstances, in illustrations we understand. One of the hardest things for Dr. Bob and I to do in, in cases where we try cases is uh, uh, how to explain a complicated truth when you have a very small amount of time in which to do it. You know, I gave a lecture recently out in California on, on how to explain complicated scientific issues related to the medical uptake of pharmaceutical agents in the human body to a lay jury. <clears throat> and a lot of people say, well, you know, you just can't do that. Well, yes, you can. You know, we're all humans and, and we can break it down and we can understand it. One of the ways that, that we do it, Bob's really gifted at thinking of analogies and thinking of a way to take something and turn it into something else. For example, we were trying an asbestos case one time and uh, Dr. John and Barhorse and the other doctors in here uh, uh, would be familiar with the term, but there is a term that's important when you understand asbestos scarring in the lung. There is a term called pulmonary alveolar macrophage. Okay? Now, I've got to make a jury understand and remember pulmonary alveolar macrophage and how it uh, takes the toxins within the pulmonary alveolar macrophage and envelops the, the uh, asbestos fiber and causes scarring in the lungs. Well, that's not easy to do. I mean, frankly, you tell that to somebody on a jury and they just start tuning out and thinking about how long it is till lunch. But instead, what we were able to do is realize that a pulmonary alveolar macrophage, a PAM, makes a lot more sense if you say, well, this is Pam. She's our pulmonary alveolar macrophage. From here on out, we're just going to call her Pam. And Pam has within her being a purse. And in this purse are a lot of toxic chemicals that will destroy things. And what Pam does is when something happens in your lung, your lung is invaded by a foreign invader, Pam shows up to kill them. And Pam will find the foreign invader, maybe it's an asbestos fiber, and say, eh, that looks nasty, that doesn't belong here, I think I'll kill it. She reaches in her purse for some poison and throws it at it to kill it. And she might try this or she might try that, but the problem with asbestos fibers is as much as you throw your poisons at them, Pam does not have a poison in her purse that will kill that asbestos fiber. So ultimately, what Pam does is she says, this isn't working. I'll just kill it myself. And she impales herself on the asbestos fiber and dies. And when she does, all of her toxic chemicals left in her purse spill out and scarring starts. And the problem is, is more PAMs come and more PAMs come. See, and, and now we've built an image there. And what have we done? We've taught a scientific truth using language and images that people, and a storyline that people can understand. And, and, and that's what a lot of these books will do. They'll take biblical truths, but they'll translate them into a storyline or into a, a, a principle or into a, a, a language that makes it easier for us to understand. And they'll go a step further. Sometimes they'll show us how to apply the biblical truth to our lives. You know, it's real easy for me to stand up here and say, uh, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But saying it and helping you apply it 
when you've got a real thorny problem in front of you. You know, when, when Debbie Riddle or, God willing, Patricia Harless are sitting in our state legislature and they've got to make a decision. What does God want me to do with my vote on this piece of legislation? How does it apply? How does it translate? Or whatever you've got in your life. When my daughter Gracie is out at homecoming and, and she's out with her friends and she's got to figure out, how does loving God first and foremost in my life apply to this today? And so a lot of these self-help books or sermons or, or counseling sessions help us understand and apply. They also help motivate. One of the biggest problems in my life is, is how do I motivate people to do things? Because that's my job. Whether it's the people who work at our law firm or whether it's the jury that I have that I want to go out and make a good decision. How do I motivate them? How do I move them? How do I get, or whether it's in here, how can I say something today that not only you'll listen to, not only will you understand it, but it will motivate you or me to be different when we walk out of this place than we were when we walked in. How can I find a picture? How can I write this? How can I explain this? Not just to explain it to you, not just to apply it to your life, but to motivate you where you say, you know, I want to do better. I'm going to be different. And that's what a lot of these self-help things do. Don't get me wrong. Scripture is perfect and is there for us. You know, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable or useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I mean, Scripture is there. And i got to tell you, a lot of these self-help lessons and sermons and books that aren't scriptural aren't all that helpful. But it's the power of Scripture that makes a self-help useful. Does that make sense? So here's my question for you. You've all bought a self-help book. You've all heard a self-help sermon. You've all gone to self-help classes. You've all had TV, radio, written word, whatever, and a cup of coffee. What self-help aid that you've had, book, sermon, whatever, do you honestly believe will be used by countless people in 1,500 years if Jesus tarries that long? Who? Bible? Sure. Bible? Cup of coffee? Probably. <clears throat> Prozac? Nah. They'll figure out something better by then. Lewis? Nah. He won't live that long. He... Pulls a muscle every time he falls behind in racquetball. Um, oh, I wasn't going to mention that. I'm so sorry, Lewis. Anyway, uh, you know, I'll tell you what. There was a self-help book written 1,500 years ago that you can now find on the Internet. You can buy it. It's been translated into most every language. And it's still used a ton today. That's pretty incredible. It's called The Rule of St. Benedict. And that's the main core of what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to do it in the following sense. 
First, we're going to put Benedict into its historical context. We've got to understand the history around it. And then we're going to look at the life of Benedict himself, the fellow who wrote it. Um, most scholars agree. There are some dissident scholars that think other people may have written it or changed it or influenced it. But by and large, it's Benedict's work. And we will look at the rule of Benedict itself. Okay? That's our outline. Historical context, first of all. Um, we talked last week in a great length about this, so I'm not going to go into uh, uh, um, uh, recounting all of what we said. But within the, the realm of the Roman world, uh, once Christianity became part of the culture and the church really became uh, um, an everyday thing that was open to everyone, uh, the religious devotion of Christians really got watered down. There were a lot of people that played the church game that weren't really committed to Christ. Or if they were committed, it was a very shallow commitment. And so you had within Christianity, not only at large in the masses, but even within the power structure of the church, a number of people who were more concerned about me, 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 and what makes me happy and what makes me full and what makes me comfortable... Then they were concerned about Jesus Christ and living a life in devotion to Him and finding holiness as a course of action. And in re response to this, uh, uh, there grew up a very pure movement of people who said, I don't want to have anything to do with the culture that's around us because the culture itself is so sinful. And these people went and sought a, 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 a loneliness or, or a, a lifestyle of aloneness in the deserts of Egypt primarily. And they became what we subsequently call hermits. They said, I'm going to go off and live by myself so I can truly live a devoted life to God. So I can find holiness, so I can escape all of the, 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 the sin and corruption of the world, and so I can focus on the sin and corruption in me and find a way through the power of Jesus Christ to defeat it and to walk in victory. Over time, these hermits realized that they didn't function quite so well alone, and so they started coming together in smaller groups. Two, three, maybe a dozen. And as they came together, they started living a life of aloneness in a cloister, Latin word, or a monastery from the Greek, which was basically a community lifestyle, but a community lifestyle that still emphasized personal holiness and solitude and quietness. And that's what we talked about last week. As this happened, you can't live in a community without certain rules, right? I tell you, you can't live in our house without certain rules, right? Drives some of our household members crazy. Dad has rules. The fact that I said dad has rules lets you know which members of the house it drives crazy. <laughs> Usually the ones who say dad. But these are the rules. I don't want my daughters out driving late at night. Because bad things can happen. Anybody else have that rule? Gracie, turn around and look quick. Okay. Um, 
before you turned around, every hand was raised. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, there are rules. You, you can't have community rules. The reason we have legislators is because we live in the state of Texas and we need r- rules and laws to live by, right? I mean, if not, if, it, if not, we're all in bad trouble because there are more powerful people and more powerful interests than all of us in this room that would roll all over us to their own benefit. But laws within society help tame that. And so um, you get these monasteries put together. You know what you need? You've got to have basic rules within the monastery. And so this happens. The monastery set up rules. Now that's the historical context of the monastic movement that brings us to the rules Benedict set up for his monastery. But before we get to those, I want to look at the historical context of what was happening specifically in Italy because that's where uh, uh, we find the birth, life, and death of Benedict. In Italy, you'll recall from our earlier classes if you've been here. If not, go to the Internet. You can download the lessons and listen to them audibly. You can read the, the lessons or you can look at the PowerPoints. But we're at a stage in time where the Roman Empire in the West, the Italian end of it, has been uh, destroyed. It's been conquered by the Goths and the Gothic king Theoderic, who was the king, uh, you'll recall we talked about Boethius a few weeks ago. He was the Gothic king who had set himself up in Italy. Uh, uh, he's, he's kind of uh, run in Italy. He finally dies after a long time. There's a few other Gothic guys who try to run it around. Uh, he died in like 526, I think. And then it was in 535... So that's nine years later. That the old emperor... You see, you still got the Roman Empire going over in, in uh, Constantinople, the eastern end. That old eastern emperor, Justinian at this time, decides, hey, maybe I can reestablish the whole Roman Empire and go conquer Italy. So Justinian comes in and brings his army and he reconquers Italy, trying to reunite the problem is that only lasts, it takes him three years to do it. He's only able to hold it for three years. Three years later, or 541, Totila comes in. Um, Totila is another goth. And he comes and reconquers it. Now, this is a war-torn, savaged country at this point in time. Net-net, uh, the bottom line, is after 535... Italy's got big problems. The, the plague has set in in some places. Uh, they've got misery. They've got desolation. They've got, they, they, it's just war-torn. It's a war zone. Rome's been sacked and sacked and sacked, and when it's not being sacked, it's besieged. And Italy itself is not a great place to be living if you care for security and you care for civilization and you care for culture. There's no real powerhouse there. By the same token, by the way, we have a lot better history of what was going on in Italy one, two, three hundred years earlier than we do during this time period. We don't know the exact year Benedict was born. Because when all of the war happens and the constant sacking, people are destroying records, they're destroying monasteries, they're destroying all sorts of things. So we lose track of a lot of the history in this time period in terms of specific dates and what have you. 
This is the context, though, in which we find Benedict of Nursia. We call him Benedict of Nursia because there are many Benedicts in church history, including one today. Who? The Pope, who chose his name, by the way, after Benedict of Nursia, first and foremost. There was a second Benedict, the, the Pope during World War I was the second reason he chose the name. But uh, uh, Benedict of Nursia is the first Benedict in the church that, that we really find as a major figure. Um, I've got some pictures for you. These come from various places. Here's the question. As you look at these pictures, what do they have in common? Okay? These are Benedict. There he is. Eh, there he is. Oh, there he is. Eh, there he is. There he is. Yeah, he's got a book. He's got a book. That's how you can always tell it's Benedict. Not always. Sometimes they paint him without a book. But generally he's got a book because Benedict's famous for writing this book, The Rule of Benedict. The biography about Benedict, what we know about him, was written by Pope Gregory the Great, who lived at the same time Benedict did, but didn't write till Benedict had been dead for about 45 years. But he wrote kind of the life of Benedict. Gives us his sources for it and everything else. And it's real interesting to me because when you read uh, Pope Gregory's book on Benedict, uh, Gregory writes about all of these different miracles that Benedict ha ha had occur in his life. And, and you, you read about these miracles and you think, you know, first of all, there's the cynic in me. I'm sorry, I confess. The cynic in me that thinks, yeah, I wonder what really happened. Um, and God forgive me if it's the hand of God and I just am a cynic. But that's part of my training as a lawyer. And so <laughs> I'm always kind of cynical. Um, but, but you read the miracles. But what really is profound to me is what Gregory says toward the end. He says, you know, this man with all of these miracles, it's not really what he's famous for. Not really what he should be famous for. What he's really important for is his holy life that produced this book. Not all the miracles. And it is the book that he's become famous for. Um, so, Benedict's born in Nursia. This is the countryside of Nursia in Italy in this slide. If we were to try and put it into a map, if this is the boot of Italy, and this center dot right here is Rome. Right, right there is Rome. Uh, Nursia is found up here in the Umbria countryside in the eastern part. Uh, it's now called Norcia, uh, N-O-R-C-I-A, but Nursia is what it was called at the time. You can actually go to the town itself. Uh, in the town, you will find uh, 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 a town square. You'll find a church dedicated to Benedict. And uh, Benedict, uh, as, a, as, a, as a general statement about who he was, his character, his life, you know, we've met Augustine or Augustine who was a worldly sinner who dabbled in cults and came to Christianity in his middle of his life. Not so with Benedict. Benedict, according to, to Pope Gregory, led a venerable life. He was blessed by grace and he was blessed in name. His name Benedict in Latin Benedictus means blessed. So he's able to write as kind of a pun, and, and, uh, and Gregory points out the pun. He's not only blessed in his life and venerable in his nature, but, but even his name was blessed because his name meant blessed. Um, as a child, according to Gregory, he had the mind of an old man. 
Now, that does not mean he was forgetful. Okay. That's kind of like uh, uh, you've heard the expression, he has an old soul. It's, it's, it's that type of an idiomatic phrase that, that this was as a child, he wasn't as interested in, in the childhood sowing of his old oats as he was in, in the mature interest of, of what makes things better. I'll never forget as a child growing up, I mark this as one of the uh, points of maturity in my life. And, and this I, I throw out there for all you kids, okay? Um, I'll never forget at the time in my life where I realized my parents did not give me rules simply because they were arbitrary parents or they wanted to make me miserable. I'll never forget when, my, when I realized my parents do this because they love me and they want what's best for me. Now, that didn't mean my parents were always right. And I would still remember thinking, you know, they may not be right on this one. But I at least knew what the heart was. And for me, that was kind of a progression from being a child into being an adult. And, and sometimes for kids, that doesn't happen until they're 35 or 40. <laughs> but, but wherever it happens, you, you know, you reach a point where you kind of turn that corner. It's the same corner we turn with God. Where we realize God didn't set up these rules for us because he was arbitrary and thought, oh, I can't let him do that. That'll be a little too much fun. You know, God just gave us the rules that would make our life the best life it could be. And when we get to the point where we realize that, we're much more readily embracing those rules than living in the rebellion that comes from thinking, oh, gee, he just doesn't want us to have fun. Okay? So... Benedict had this mind of an old man as a young child. He's born into a wealthy family. They've got a lot of money. And uh, uh, when he's born, they send him off to Rome to study. And he studies the humanities in Rome. Um, he goes there with his nurse. She's much older. Nurse is not just like, gee, he's sick nurse. Nurse in the sense of someone who was his nanny growing up. They don't send you off to Rome by yourself, even if you're a... Uh, a 10-year-old boy. You know, you got to have someone take care of you. So the nurse went with him. Benedict studies in Rome, but while he studies there, he finds that so many of the people who are studying really deviate and go off into sin. It's not that uncommon, I think, even for students today that go off to college to all of a sudden, yeehaw, they're alone. They don't have that yoke of parental oversight. And add to it, they're learning all these new things that are opening all these horizons. And so it's not at all uncommon to find them sort of veer off of the path of life. And one of our goals as parents is to teach them things like quiet time and devotion so that when they get to college, they find the great joys that come from expanding your knowledge and expanding your freedom and staying in God's will. So he goes there and he doesn't like what he sees. And he thinks he's headed for sin if he's there. So he quits. He leaves school. And he goes at about 30, 40 miles to the west of Rome. And uh, 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 goes to a place called Infide. And today it's, it's called Aphile. And he goes to a church at St. Peter where a lot of people are living. Here's what the town looks like today. 
While he's there, his uh, nurse has borrowed a sieve, which is uh, uh, made out of pottery. It's got holes in it. It's kind of like a sifter. It's for uh, getting the good flour-making wheat out from the shaft and the other things. You know, you sift it. And she's borrowed it. It's left out on a table and somehow gets broken. She's distraught. Uh, 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 Benedict takes it, goes off by himself with tears of crying. I mean, the guy's really touched. It just prays over it. And the bowl, uh, it, it smashed pieced bowl, is put back together such that you can't even see the seam. And this miracle happens. And, 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 and the nurse is ecstatic and everybody's, oh my goodness, look at this guy. He's a miracle worker. He's la-da-da-da-da, which bothers Benedict, and he doesn't want the fame of men, and I'm not even sure he was planning on putting the pottery back together. I think he's just crying over it, and God did it if it happened that way. So Benedict steals away, and he leaves. And he goes and he finds a cave in Sabiaco where he lives for three years, leaves his nurse behind, leaves everybody behind. He just goes and, 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 and he finds a cave. Now, you go to the cave today where he was and they built this monastery around it, this impressive building around the cave. Um, uh, they've still got an entrance where you can go into the cave where he lives for three years. And only one priest seems to know where he is and brings him some food until God opens up the mind of another priest and says, you need to go. There's a light that's hidden in a bushel. And I didn't make lights to hide in a bushel. I made them to shine. So you need to get him out of the cave. And, uh, uh, at, and he goes and he visits and he brings meals and he helps plug in to Benedict. Benedict stays there. Ultimately, after three years, he leaves his cave because some guys in a monastery talk him into coming to lead their monastery as an abbot. Benedict says, I don't think you really want me. They said, yes, yes, you're a holy guy. He says, yeah, well, that's the problem. I don't think you all are real holy monks. And if I'm like your abbot, we're going to have some real trouble here. And they said, no, no, no. Have you ever met anybody that wants to be holy until they start trying to do it? Well, that's what happened. And lo and behold, there comes a time when they're actually, they're trying to get rid of him. They want him gone. Virtuosity does not coexist well with evil. So the monks decide if he's not leaving, we'll poison him. And they put poison in his wine cup. Actually, we don't know that it's a wine cup, but in his cup. Because Benedict ultimately isn't a big fan of wine. In fact, he later writes in his rules, you know, monks shouldn't be drinking wine. But some of you just aren't going to say no. So if you're going to drink it, drink it with uh, moderation. And uh, it's interesting insight from him. But uh, he's got this, and before he drinks of the wine, or, or the cup, I should say, he makes a cross, and he says a prayer over it. And lo and behold, the cup with the poison breaks. And someone squeals and tells what's in it. And he sees God's deliverance and uh, decides, you know, maybe this isn't the job for me after all. And he leaves the monastery. Uh, now, it's interesting as Gregory relates this story, the question is asked of Gregory by Peter, uh, who's the guy that Gregory's having the dialogue with. Why did he leave? If he's a holy man, it seems to me those guys that were trying to kill him really need the holy man there. Should have stayed to convert him. Gregory says, well, think of it in mathematical terms. He says, he may have had a few dozen people there he could save, but it would have been a lot of work and no telling that he could have really saved them all. But by leaving, he was able to save tons of more people. So mathematically, it was expedient to leave. 
So he left. He goes and and Benedict starts 12 monasteries, eventually building one called Monte Cassino, on Cassino Mountain, if you will. And this is what it looks like today. Uh, uh, After World War II, it looked like that because that was where the Germans uh, uh, had a huge defensive stand set up to protect against uh, an entry into Rome. And so Allied bombers just bombed the the fire out of it. uh, But it was rebuilt according to the original plans, and so we've got it today looking like this. And it's while at this Mount Casino that Benedict writes his rule. He writes his self-help. It's self-help for monks. This is the rule by which you live in his monastery. But it's even more, it's self-help for you and me. In fact, he says in his prologue, I direct my speech to you who give up your own will and take up the weapons of obedience. The weapons and arms of obedience to do battle for Christ. You want to battle for Christ, he says. The way to battle for Christ is to be obedient to him. Because the battle's Christ's. All we have to do is do what Christ tells us to. And if we do what Christ tells us to, if we're obedient, then we're in battle. And Christ will, will win through us. And he says, so this is written for anyone who wants to do battle for Christ. Uh, he says, this is it. And this is found in the prologue. And what I've done in your lesson is I've attached a copy of the prologue and also chapter 4, which is a, a really cool chapter. I'm going to talk to you about it briefly, but I've got about five more minutes. I don't have my watch on. Do I have five more minutes? Seven Seven minutes. Okay. We're going to make it through some of this, but you've got it there in front of you to take it home and read. I love the way he starts his prologue. The first word is listen. Reminds me of the passage in James chapter 1 where James said, Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Listen. 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 One of the hardest things to do. But that's where he starts out. Listen, you don't want to hear. If you don't have ears to hear, you're not going to hear him. You're not going to hear God. You're not going to hear anybody. But be still and know that I'm God, God said in the Psalms. Jesus said, him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen. Be quick to listen and slow to speak, says James. In that spirit of scriptural wisdom, Benedict starts out and says, listen. Then he says a little later on in the prologue, beg of God. Beg of God by most earnest prayer that God will perfect whatever you've started. If you're started something and you're doing something in Christ, then beg of God in most earnest prayer that God will finish it. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1. Paul says that it is his prayer that God will complete the good work which he began in you in Christ Jesus. It's the same thing. And in fact, as you go through the rule of Benedict, you will find it replete time after time after time with Scripture. Um, it's got general traits of how you want to live. Chapter 4 is my favorite. He's got 73 things listed there. Here it is, 73. Now I want you to give it a try. Here it is. We're listing 1, 2, 3, 4, 10, and 73. We're skipping a few. We're running out of time. If you were going to... No cheating now. If you've already looked, you don't get to answer this. If you were going to give someone a list of 73 things to do so that they could better be Christians, what would be number one on your list? What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, and strength. All right, now what would be the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the way he starts it out. 
As Jesus was asked by the Jews, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then from there he goes to number three. What do you think number three was? Huh? Read the Bible. That's good. Remember, this guy is a human being. Remember what happened to him at the monastery? Not kill. <laughs> right on the heels of love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's, Don't kill. Especially me. Okay? Uh, number 10 I like. Deny yourself to follow Christ. That's a good one. I love number 73, the last one. Never, ever, ever despair of God's mercy. Never despair of God's mercy. Ah, number 21. Prefer nothing to the love of Christ. Ooh, I want this. Don't ever want it more than you want the love of Christ. And then the love of Christ will control you. And it's really wonderful. I mean, this is 73 things that we could spend. This is a self-help book we could spend three months in very profitably. He's got an entire chapter written on humility. He lays out the rules for the monastery. In his monastery, here are the rules. You get to sleep for six to eight hours. That's actually pretty good. Most uh, monasteries, they wouldn't let you sleep diddly. A third of your waking time you spend working, a third of your waking time you spend worshiping, and a third of it you spend studying. Your worship schedule is like this. Before dawn, while it's still dark, you have vigils. That's when you rise and you prepare and you worship. And then you have matins, which is now called lauds, praises. And you did that right before the sun came up. You had a praise service. And then four times during the day, you'd have an hour set aside where you would worship. At sunset, you had vespers worship. And then after the sun went down, you ended the day with compline. And those were the ceremonies. When you weren't doing that, you were working or studying. And that's the way he set it up. Now, what are you going to study? Well, he said, read this and read that. But you know the most important book for you to read, according to Benedict? Most important book? He said, what page or what utterance of the divinely inspired books of the Old and the New Testament is not a most unerring rule of human life? More important than anything else, study the Bible. And you and I can spend time in all these self-help books, but don't leave alone the Bible. Because what page? Show me a page or an utterance of the Bible, any book, that's not an unerring rule of human life. There isn't one. If you wanted to be an initiate and go live in the monastery, he had the pro program set up for that. Several days in a guest house, two months in the novice cells, then ten months for a novitiate before you uh, made your profession. And that's the way you set it up. Now, here are your points for home. Let's understand what this is about. This is about how to be a better Christian. This isn't about how to get to be a Christian. See, So our first point for home, our works and our holiness are never the basis for our salvation. Paul makes it abundantly clear in Ephesians 2 that we've been saved by grace through faith, not by works. None of us can boast. Let none of us... I mean, he spends a whole chapter on humility. None of us have any basis for boasting. It is God who we seek to... We beg of God in earnest prayer to do the good work in us. Because we can't do any of this of our own. The salvation comes from Jesus Christ. Are the works important? Absolutely. But it's God doing the works in us. We are a part of that. 
Paul writes in Galatians, Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that also he reaps. I put it up there in NIV, but I memorized it in New American Standard. Sorry. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature reaps destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit reaps eternal life. So don't become weary in well-doing. Holiness is important. It makes a difference in how we live. And let's care for the body. You know, he put rules in place. It's interesting to read the rules for how the brothers interact. By the way, they weren't allowed uh, uh, to, like, be violent with each other. Um, But all of the interaction, the care for the sick. You know, the sick could eat meat during fasts when others couldn't. The sick were not allowed to work in the kitchen. Good dietary rules, too, for the rest of us not to get sick. But, you know, everybody worked in the kitchen in different ways and different manners. And diff- it was a real interesting rule. And, and it shows a care for the church at large. And that we should do. And then, final, I put this up here because it's important that we understand. You know, Jesus says we're the salt of the earth. Uh, we're a light on a hill. The monastic life that Benedict taught was never one of let's seclude ourselves from the world. He had monks that were going out and ministering to the poor. He had monks that were going out and giving service, giving alms, giving charity. In fact, that's one of his 73 is to do charity. He had specific rules for what to do if you're away and you can't get back in time for the evening. Where do you stay? What do you do if you're away and someone offers you a meal on a day that you're fasting? He's got the rules for that because it it was never, gee, let's get off by ourselves and ignore the world. It's let's purify ourselves so we can better flavor the world. And I will tell you this as we leave. It were the monasteries, especially the Benedictine monasteries, that during that quiet time were copying the scriptures so that we still had copies when the printing press was invented by Gutenberg because the monks had spent a thousand years hand-copying these scriptures. And it's a wonderful thing that they've done. But those types of things they did out of service for the church, never in a secluded manner. You don't get holy just for your walk with God. You get holy so He uses you to affect the world. Pray with me. God, thank You so much for the ways that You speak to us through people, through books, through ministries, through counseling through medicine, through so many different means, Father, you seek to bring us into greater holiness with you. May we take it seriously. May we find the joy in walking in greater holiness with you. I pray that you'll put it in everybody's heart to take these sheets home today and to spend some time reading through these rules. Lord, speak to everybody as they do it in areas where you want us to grow because we seek to be your children more purely out of love and devotion in Jesus Christ. Amen.